0: Thank you, Mr. Intro Man. And I've jumped in a bit earlier this time, Mark. I think a a couple of episodes ago you were a little bit worried that I may put my mic on mute again, as I typically do at least a couple of times each episode, don't I? Welcome, everybody, to the Vet Guru's Bread Podcast. I was going to say breadcast there, Mark. Um, I haven't made bread for a while, and I do like making bread. I don't know whether you do, Mark, but um, I find it quite therapeutic. Yes,
1: yes, it is. Do you make sourdough?
0: Ah, yes. At one stage I had a sourdough um, little colony going in the fridge for probably about six plus months and... um, it was getting nice and sour, and, and I love the sourdough bread. But I must have met a couple of the girls. Uh, Sophie doesn't particularly like it. Um, Annie, my wife, does, and Jane, so so. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And, and it all you do is you just have basically the yeast that you let go off and uh, just let it brew. Um, and it, and um, I know that there's some classic sourdough, um cultures that have been around for what decades or even hundreds of years isn't there in some of the famous um bread making institutions mark but yeah i i did end up i can't remember what happened but i did end up throwing it out after about six months or so i think i had to clear the fridge out might have been for when i was telling you how long ago it was maybe for jane's 21st um or 18th birthday um, because we needed room in the fridge for all the alcohol for all her friends, I think. So I had to throw out the the starter. But, yes, occasionally sourdough, but traditionally or typically it's just a, a white loaf, Mark. Um, I've played around with some of the other loaves as well um, and some of the rye-type varieties, but they're, they're quite good fun. And when I'm talking to clients, getting a bit back towards veterinary science, <laughs> when I'm talking to clients about uh, – about gut stasis in rabbits in particular i will mention to them i i say their stomach feels like dough if you're making bread and um, a lot of clients can relate to that because they know what that sort of texture or that feel is like when their rabbit's c-command or stomach has that doughy type feeling mark so there you go So how did we get on to that? Oh, yes, my my mispronunciation. So there we go. So um, vetgurus.com is a place to go to get all our previous episodes and look through them, and you can do a search there and look for your favourite topics. You might want to look at birds, so you can search for birds, or you might look for ferrets and search for ferrets. So... Yeah, vetgurus.com. And thanks to our two main sponsors, Specialized Animal Nutrition and F10, which is Chemical Essentials, um, for their ongoing support. Mark, what have you been up to this week? Anything of interest that you want to share with everybody?
1: Well, I've just it's actually been a pretty boring uh, a week in my life. I've been sort of preparing for – I've uh, just signed up for another term on the New South Wales Veterinary Practitioners Board, and so I'm preparing for one of those meetings, Brendan. They, there's a huge swathe of the paper to read before each one of those meetings, and you know how good and organised I am, and uh, so it's a, it's a bit of a chore to make sure I'm across all the stuff for the meeting. So that I've just been, in rather boring fashion, churning through the paper.
0: Yes, it's amazing how much... Paperwork there is, isn't it, Mark? Um, even when you're just dealing with running a clinic as well, um, all the all the bureaucracy that you have to deal with, even with a small veterinary clinic. Yeah, not much happening with me, although a couple of interesting cases this week. Uh, I think one we went home this morning. A a bearded dragon with a partial tail amputation that um, the owner wasn't very happy about this tail on this bearded dragon because his son has a quite unruly friend who came around to look at the Bitter Dragon and he doesn't like them playing in their bedroom where the Bitter Dragon is housed together because they get up to mischief and they certainly did this time. And the, the friend who came around... Um, dropped the bearded dragon on the floor and then um, accidentally, apparently stomped on him um, on the tail of the bearded dragon. So I saw this bearded dragon after it been to the local vet um, for a couple of weeks with them trying to control the sort of necrosis that was slowly creeping up the tail mark. As you probably know, they're pretty typical, these sort of almost dry gangrene type lesions that bearded dragons get. So we... Amputated uh, partial amputation of the tail about one, th- two thirds of the way towards the tip, and um, yeah, looking a lot happier, albeit a little less weight um, when I weighed it. Um, although, when you factor in the bandage, it probably end up about the same weight as when it came in. So, yeah, that was my um, fun one over the last couple of days. Um, and a few of the ones you probably see a fair few I've marked, the vomited and diarrhoea dogs. I've had a little bit of a run of the old garbage guts, the gastrointestinal um, episodes in in dogs, particular, but I think also one cat. And uh, so far, so good. Nothing too dramatic with those, and we're just resting the gut and um, providing a bit of supportive care. So yeah, not particularly too exciting for me either, Mark. But um, I think we've got something pretty exciting coming up with our main topic, Mark. Nasty Nine. Sounds pretty horrible, doesn't it? Nine conditions that we don't like treating or seeing. So it sort of you know, feels
1: like that. it's going to be a bit cathartic, Brendan. It's going to be one of those ones where we don't like this because of this. We don't like this. You know, you'll be able to get your full angry on,
0: I reckon. That's right. I, sh- I should feel very, very, um, I was going to say something very seriously there, which <laughs> I I'll, I'll feel very good at the end of this, I think, Mark, um, after I've released all that anger um from those nasty conditions or 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 um diseases or potentially even nasty clients that um I don't like seeing Mark. But maybe we should jump into our news stories and we've got a couple of Quite fun ones this week. So a bit upbeat, Most or mostly upbeat, I think, Mark, with these ones. And yours is particularly up, which is your first one, yeah. <laughs> which we'll talk about in a sec. But I, the first one I've got is a, um, a thanks to um, one of our avid listeners and subscribers, and that's Rita, um, Rita Sousa, um, in that um, she's mentioned she was listening to our previous podcast a few podcasts ago about dinosaurs, and um, we were talking about how Belinda, one of my part-time vets, loves dinosaurs, and Rita mentioned that she needs to head over to Portugal because Rita um, sent me this article, which I'll provide a link to in the show notes at vetgurus.com. If you're looking for the real Jurassic Park, Mark, you might want to try Portugal because the recently opened Dino Park is ready and open for you to head over there, Mark. So uh, I don't know whether you should have it over there, Mark, because I could imagine that you'll just critique it, something terribly, and um, you'll end up getting very angry. I'm sure they don't have nearly enough feathers involved. (laughs) And I know you don't like anything to do do with the Jurassic Park movies and um, their lack of um, rigour with their scientific approach to things. But anyway, this is at a um, a a town, um, Lurinach, if I've um, pronounced that correctly, Um, and it is the self-proclaimed... Dino capital of Europe, and I think they have 120 full-scale reproductions according to the article of 70 different dinosaur species, including, Mark, a dinosaur that was dug up the fossilised bone of one of the dinosaurs from that particular region, which, funnily enough, is, is named Lorenosaurus which is a carnivore, and the Lorraine hasaurus, which is a herbivore. So there you go, Mark. If you're planning to visit the Jurassic Park in Portugal, let me know, and perhaps you could meet Rita there and she could – you can do an interview with Rita for the Vet Guru's podcast there. So thanks to Rita for the um, note about Dinosaur World in Portugal, which is now open, so perhaps we should – have a conference over that way soon, and we can have that as the field trip for the demo.
1: I, I, I you know, it is a little bit, you know, I am the 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 pedantic pain in the butt person who goes, oh, look, they haven't paid attention to that particular, you know, bit of uh, paleontological data, and that that's obviously you know unacceptable. But I do think, um, just seeing how big these things are is, um, is uh, you know, that's awe-inspiring enough. I reckon it's okay, Brendan. I'll probably have a whinge if I ever see it, but it passes the test at the moment.
0: Excellent. And, um, yeah, I've looked at uh, – there is a link to the actual Dino Park there, which I'm just scrolling through at the moment as you're speaking there, Mark, and, yeah, it looks uh, quite impressive, um, especially for kids, I think. Youngsters, teenagers um, would love this sort of thing. Um, And those young at heart like you and I, Mark, um, we'd probably spend most of the time um, in the coffee shop there, I think, Mark. But, um, yeah, and you'd be critiquing everything. But, yeah, the size of them, because I think some of them are full scale, obviously, with them, not all of them by the look of it. But, yeah, I think it's like what we talk about when – People go to um, zoos and look at um, the actual live animals that we have t- these days. You don't really appreciate them, do you, unless you get up there live and personal. So maybe we should get to this dinosaur park in Portugal. So enough about dinosaur-mania. Mark, what is the article number two? Well, my my
1: uh, first article um, this time is um, talks about scent marking, Brendan. It's a little article which talks about uh, how dogs communicate and one particular aspect of that communication which, um, well, in some respects I think we could almost call human. But I digress. The, um, The article in question talks about why small dogs actually aim to urinate much higher than larger dogs. So, um, researchers call uh, the marking of territory that um, that uh, particularly male dogs do to um, to you know provide information about their um, their reproductive status, their identity, their their um, uh, sex, all those sorts of bits of information. Um, they they the, the little mark of the urine on a Upright surface is what researchers call an honest signal. That's a a message that when other dogs come along and take a sniff, the information they deduce from um, the the smell and the position um, gives them a lot of true information about the dog that left the message, Brendan. Um, But new data suggests that in some circumstances there are dogs that in very human fashion, may tell little white lies when they uh, are prone to lift a leg. So um, the thesis is that um, some dogs, in an attempt to give a message that they might be just a little bit bigger and uh, prouder than they actually are, um, are... Uh, actually lift their leg and aim the urine stream up the vertical surface that they're scent marking a little bit higher. Um, And they've done statistical analyses, Brennan, which um, shows that particularly small dogs raise, that they um, increase the angle with which their raised leg is lifted. um, And as a consequence, they end up uh, creating a urine stream which hits vertical surface at a higher point and this may well um exaggerate their body size by uh you know deceptively leaving a much higher urine mark um it comes as no surprise to us as veterinarians that the majority of dogs that do this are in fact chihuahuas because uh they they, um, as we well know have uh well it's sort of an interesting thing because most of the chihuahuas i know uh, um, you know, have no concept of size. They're, they're already, you know, they already think they're the biggest. It wouldn't surprise me if they didn't raise their leg at all because they just would do away and expect everyone to know they were in charge. Um, but um, but it is uh, not a surprise that dogs are acquiring some of these human characteristics in terms of, you know, leaving their online message and maybe... Just massaging the details a little bit, like sort of like leaving a photo that's of you on a dating site, but ten years ago. Um, I think um,
0: I think uh, that's one of the side effects of domestication. And you need to stop doing that, Mark. Okay. You need to update your photo there, Mark, and stop peeing on lampposts after a big night out, I think, um, is the important thing. But, yes, I, as you probably heard, I had a bit of a chuckle when you were talking about um, that particular species of dog. I must admit, why well, I don't see too many chai Mark, um, and they're not... Um, one of my favorite breeds unfortunately, so do you see a few of them do you? Well,
1: we do see a few we do and and to be honest they um they do seem to be um uh, I don't know maybe it's me getting mellower rather than the breed but um I do remember one of our good friends dr. Robert Johnson who's is prone to doing a little sketch every once in a while one of his classic cartoons um, is a uh, uh, is a demonstration of the um, proud anatomy the proud scrotal anatomy of your average chihuahua
0: yes yes um we should ask robert to supply us with a couple of his cartoons we can put one at least one or two or three or lots of them as far as our photos or our 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 key photograph at the vetgurus.com website, Mark, Um, so that can be something we need to get onto. So remind me about that because I'm sure he'd love to contribute to it. We can do a little post for him because he is a fantastic cartoonist. Old Roberto. Um, Yes, so dogs peeing, Mark, that was number two. Well, number three is something even a little bit more out there, and I think you'd classify this as one of those clickbait type articles here, Mark, and this is about a neighbourhood overrun by goats. Um, And this is a little bit scary, this, isn't it, Mark? Um, It's boys in Idaho, boys or bows in Idaho. um, The neighbourhood on the morning of August the 3rd was overrun by 118 goats which swarmed the neighbourhood, eating everything inside, according to a local reporter. (laughs) So, you know, who needs um, what's the little app you can play um, that um, on your phone and on the computer? The, the the goat simulator, Mark. I don't know whether you've played with the goat simulator, but who I've needs goat simulator? A, I've never heard of the goat simulator. Before. Oh, you've got to play goat simulator, um, um, but who needs goat simulator if you um, live in Boys, Idaho? Because you can um, see the real thing, can't you? Um, but apparently, they took over the town. These one hundred and eighteen goats. Um, However, I'm disappointed, Mark, if not a little bit annoyed and potentially a tad angry. Mm-hmm. Because the further I read down this article, Mark, um, it turned out the goats were employees of We Rent Goats company. Um, Believe it or not, there's a company that is called We Rent Goats and they rent out goats. Presumably, you could hire one of these goats if you want a environmental control method instead of mowing your lawn. um, You could just have a goat um, and rent one for a little bit of time or a long period of time. Um, And apparently, these 118 goats were supposed to be eating weeds at a nearby pond and they escaped after a few of them knocked down a fence and they went on a rampage in the little town in Idaho. Um, the They did call the animal control officer, but apparently it wasn't a particularly big animal control region um, because the animal control wasn't prepared because they only had one truck um, and they couldn't quite handle 118 <laughs> goats. But the good news is they did manage to round up these all of these goats after a couple of hours or so, so there you go. The so, story yeah.
1: has just, like, so many. Like, I want to know, on what spreadsheet did they work out that this particular job needed 118 goats? Why not 119?
0: Perhaps that's the, the the total number of goats they had left to be able to be rent. Maybe, it was, maybe
1: it was the end of we rent go stock and they just I have had to take what they can get.
0: Perhaps they may not be viable anymore, this company, because the last paragraph talks about the fact that the company's reaching out to the people in the neighbourhood regarding damages um, because they were a little bit over-enthusiastic with chewing on lawn and bush and greenery that people didn't want to removed by the goats mark um and apparently none of those things are covered by traditional home insurance so they could be in trouble (laughs) so there we go so goats on a rampage There, there we go um that is um something a little bit yeah i'm a bit angry now because perhaps i've wasted five minutes of people's listening time talking about a very trivial um article that Maybe I should not have spoken about it all. Well, so, going. what's number four, Mark? <laughs> Let's jump onto something a little bit more important.
1: Well, I don't know that I could. Well, This is important, I suppose. It, um, it's a, it's a once again a little bit towards the
0: light-hearted
1: um, end of the spectrum, but it has a serious um, undertone to it. Um, this article is uh, is um, from the Mother Nature Network, uh, one of our regular sources when we're not uh, when uh, Doctor Doug hasn't. Um, Set us up with a, a whole heap of his articles. Um, and this story is about Sombra. Um, Sombra is one of the uh, police dogs, German Shepherds, who works in the Colombian National Police Force. Um, s- uh, those people much smarter than me will know that Sombra is Spanish for shadow. Um, uh, so it's interesting how, yeah, a lot of We'd see a few shadows. Um, so it's interesting how the name transfers across between cultures. But um, in particular, Sombra has a um, uh, um, folk hero status because um, one of the drug cartels has put a price on her head. Um, her head? I'm pretty sure somebody. Yes, definitely heard. Yes, yes, she's a six-year-old female German Shepherd, and she is reportedly the scourge of the Colombian drug gangs. And particularly since March 2016, where she found 2,958 kilograms of cocaine hydrochloride in a banana box. Brennan, what um, what's the street? It's I a big think
0: banana that, box. That's a very big banana box,
1: I think. Since then, she has not let up. In May 2017, she found another shipment totaling 1.1 tonnes. And then in June, she sniffed out another 5.3 tonnes of cocaine. The bloody east coast of the US would just not be able to survive. Um, She found another four tonnes in an auto parts shipment. Um, Oh, my goodness. Um, sombra's busts have resulted in 245 arrests um, and uh, and they have na- made her into a Colombian national icon. There's situations where the citizens want selfies with her. she's a fixture on the local news and she's uh, been awarded the department's Wilson Quintero medal twice for her contribution to the war on drugs. So it's no surprise that I don't once again, Pronunciation is it the Eurobans drug gang? They've put a, y- so, a y- bounty on Sombras' head, Brendan.
0: Yes, yes, and the interesting thing is that um, because they're so worried that she may be knocked off, and um, when she after she works and to and from her 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 working days, she's transferred in. A where is it? She's transferred in a van with tinted windows and two armed guards who keep an eye on her while she works. So there we go. Um, apparently, though, it hasn't gone to a head, has it, Mark? No,
1: that, that, that she still is a beautiful, gentle, friendly, calm canine, and um, she uh, she plays with the children and lets them pat her and lets them say hello to her. Um, it's a um, uh, not only. Um, is, is her job to search for and apparently regularly find cache, caches of illicit drugs. But after her work is done, to de-stress, she communicates and supports the, the you know, the kids of the country and connects with them and and uh, makes that um, uh, police young person connection more valuable. She's she's just a star, Brendan. That's
0: it is pretty amazing and I just looked at some of the the little selfies that everybody tries to take with her when she's out and about and, um, yeah, she's a bit of a, I look it, a bit of a national icon there, but, gee, i tell you what, um, she may not have long to go if she keeps um, detecting that, that many <laughs> kilos. They're going to be after her, Mark. They are going to be after her. Um, although if you look at the picture in the article of the um, drug sniffing dogs on parade there mark um, I think what they've done is they've they've cloned her um, and the majority of the German shepherds there look very very similar there so it's pretty hard to tell who's who and which one is actually her so I think perhaps they have a they have a um, double they have a doppelganger. Yeah. A doppelganger that um, they they drive around separately in case she gets hit or he gets hit, um, and they keep the real, the real McCoy, the real deal separate. Yeah, now, fun story there, Mark. And um, the 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 amount of, I mean, I, I don't know what what percentage of a of a weekly. Weekly intake of, of that particular drug, would that be, that she um, she's managed to um, detect? It may only be a very small amount, but, gee, it seems like a lot, doesn't it? Oh, um,
1: tons that and tons. Geez, uh, it's got to be, a, be making a dent.
0: You'd expect it. Um, hopefully it would be. And, um, yeah, good on her. Good on her. So there we go. The drug cartel puts a bounty on a dog's head that's news story number four. Look, we had, I reckon, I reckon we had four good news stories there, Mark. That's a first for us. Isn't it? And um, feel good, feel good stories. There's
1: quite some feeling, good, though, Brendan. You still managed to get a bit angry about them, nonetheless.
0: I am a bit angry about that goat one, I must admit. Um, I'd, the more I think about it, the more I think that story was a complete waste of time, <laughs> yes. Okay, so let's jump on to our main topic this week. So instead of a, a top ten, Mark, we we both decided that we do something a little bit dis- different and that is nasty nine. So we will talk about nine conditions in no particular order and I'm sure we could easily put in another nine or another 20 or another 18 or whatever, but we're going to just put in nine conditions or or or, or maybe not, or diseases or, or potentially circumstances. Uh, Circumstances, yes. So nine things that we um we don't like, or we, <laughs> we don't like seeing, or we don't like doing. It's taking on a much more, more curmudgeonly um, tone than I originally
1: intended, Brendan. I thought I thought, you well, know, these are you know we do we do try and you know be reasonably upbeat, but there, there are things in our professional day that um that bring us down a little bit. And um, we thought we'd talk about them and maybe talk a little bit about the ways that um, we manage these circumstances to make us feel a little bit less down, make the outcomes um, a little bit less depressing. But, jeez, the way you've described it there, Brendan, it's it's not sounded good.
0: Well, you're lucky you're not at my clinic when I see one of these, Mark, um, because you don't want to be near me because sparks will be flying if um, if you get in my way and when we see one of these um, because some of them are actually, I must admit, this is a bit all tongue-in-cheek because some of these I do really enjoy treating, Mark, and they're, they're a real challenge. But some days I just want to vaccinate dogs, Mark, um, and I'm glad I still see the odd dog and the odd cat at my practice because I get to work, the coffee machine's not working, and I get a complex case coming in, and the world is not good. So we're going to talk about some of these. We're going to rip through them, Mark, four or five minutes on each, and I'm going to talk about the first one, and that is spinal osteopathy in reptiles, in particular snakes. I see it mostly in, and this is a condition we have mentioned previously, and this is a nasty condition. And the reason why I don't like it, Mark, is because every single case of that I have seen or diagnosed with this condition ends up being euthanized because I think it's extremely extremely grave outlook for them and I think it's extremely painful condition as well. So I I find them very frustrating and, and very sad these cases because I it's one of the few conditions where when I see that radiograph of this of the snake, for instance, with the with the horrible spinal lesions, with with the osteomyelitis going on there, and the production and destruction of bone um, in several places, uh, I know that this animal is not long for the world, and and this client might have brought in this snake, Mark, that um, had these lumps and bumps for several weeks or several m- months, and yet. The chances are extremely high that I'm not going to let that snake go home, um, apart from in a body bag, um, because it's a quality of life issue with them. So I, I, you know, it can be tra- quite traumatic for everybody, um, these, um, because I, I think, I don't know about you, you may want to comment, but the clients, May not realise that they have a have an animal that has a has an untreatable condition when when they bring it into us and and um, they're quite shocked when I go through the process with them and it's sad days all around, Mark, I think you've
1: the nail on the head, head there, Brendan, and and it is one of the really difficult things about this disease is that it's in as you said it's inevitable that the the um the snake is going to be euthanised because they are in a I would say one of the most painful things that I see snakes get and as you point out it's rarely the case that clients will often come in with you know the most minor of um, he's just got a little bump or that part of him is not moving normally and and their their um, concern is not at all commensurate with uh, the um, the disease process that's going on um, and 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 we do have to As you said, most often um, it's um, euthanasia relatively um, quickly. But um, if we do go with pain control for a short period of time to let the owners come to terms with the seriousness of the problem, my experience is we've got to use high doses of the most powerful painkillers if we're going to have any effect at all, Brendan.
0: Absolutely. and. Is just such a hopeless po- prognosis, isn't it? With virtually all of them, And I have, and I'm sure you have as well. I have tried with some of them where we, where we do biopsies of the bone and, and cultures, and, and the ones that initially don't seem quite as severe as, as the others. But I, I must admit, I don't, I don't think I've ever had one case that hasn't ended up being euthanized. And the ones that I've battled away with have certainly been on high doses of multimodal analgesia um, until that point in time when we decide it's time and we have to say goodbye to it. So, yeah, spinal osteopathy or... That's probably one of the terms that we use for this condition, and there's several other terms. Is is what certainly one of my nasty nine, Mark. What's what's number two that we're going to talk about? Well,
1: number two is a bit of a, um, a recap, I suppose, Brendan, because um, we've already spoken about it in a number of episodes, and that's dental disease in rabbits. And it's a it's a um, series of uh, cases that we regularly get as part of our referral work. We're lucky to have. Um, local practices who who look to us to deal with these cases, and um, and so we're you know, like you mentioned at the beginning. I'm always excited to to get to meet new people and teach them new things about um, their animals. But when we get to talk to them about dental disease, they often have free preformed, you know, oh, it's an abscess in the jaw. It'll be something that's got to have some surgery, and then everything will be good. And um, the complex nature of the disease and oftentimes the advanced state um, that we're in, the, the chronic nature, the ongoing nature of the treatment, um, its there are days when I get to try to explain that to clients and it's a bit of a downer. They're, they're like the people who come in with their um, spinal osteopathy pythons. They're sort of whacked right in the middle of the forehead with something that's much more serious and complex and and uh, costly than they were initially expecting, Brendan. So it's one of my top nine nasty um, uh, circumstances, uh, conditions that we see in unusual and exotic pets. Do you find the same thing?
0: Yes, and I think you're, you're spot on there, and that we've we've mentioned in a couple of the previous episodes. I think episode twenty six and thirty five were was were our two dental disease in rabbits, and I'm sure we'll have at least one or two more whole episodes on that. Um, We concentrate on the treatment aspects with those and the preventative aspects as well. But we definitely have these cases that come to us and and a lot of them are those referral ones that we don't even get off um, the first base with them, do we? Um, Because the dental disease is so severe in them that we we are recommending euthanasia first up with them. um, Despite the fact with those... Other, I mean, I've, I, I quite enjoy the dental work in, in the rabbits or in most of the species, and I do find them a, g- a good challenge, but they're nasty, a lot of them, and, and, and we have to end up being realistic and, and practical um, with the quality of life decisions with, with some of these cases. And, and I think we forget that a reasonable number of these cases, when they do come to us, they really do have advanced dental disease and, and even with some of them palliative care, isn't enough, as you mentioned there, and it really is a a difficult conversation that we have to have with the clients there. But yeah, so I I, I agree, it's one of the nasty nine. Mark, um, dental disease in rabbits is of the nasty nine that we're talking about with unusual pets here we're not talking about dogs and cats we should do a nasty nine in dogs and cats at one stage as well the third one is okay i'm going to get you to talk about the third one because it's one that you see much more commonly than i do but i find them extremely challenging especially in chickens mark
1: i know exactly what you're saying brendan um and the topic you've alluded to is um egg yolks in birds and um it, it, birds are, they're wonderful, you know, the physiology of them is, I find, fascinating. The things I learn each day um, just are, are amazing. And um, one of the, the unfortunate things, though, is that the damn things are geared for reproduction at the drop of a hat. And so being so primed for reproductive activity just predisposes them to uh, these problems with their reproductive tract. And, Type of bird that uh, that we do see most serious um, issues with are the um, uh, poultry, chickens, backyard chickens, and the really, the really, really frustrating thing for me about these backyard chickens is that the people that um, there's often a backstory. I find with these chickens that people have, you know, embraced the backyard poultry as maybe part of a simpler life, maybe um, they're you know, turning away from capitalism or whatever it is, but they just enjoy it. And the chickens become not just a, a egg-providing utilitarian service in the backyard, but they become real pets and companions and they uh, bond to people. And because it's an interaction that people are, are no longer familiar with, um, they become highly invested in the birds. And then when particularly the rescue birds, birds that come from, um, that are, that are uh, um, farmed off, taken off the um, commercial poultry farms and enter into the rescue situation, those birds have just had their reproductive tracks flogged to within an inch of their lives. And, and, um, and of course, it's no surprise that something goes wrong and then we've got that same conundrum, a very, very serious, expensive, life-threatening condition in an animal that people really care an immense amount about, and um, they are difficult to manage, Brendan. And the last thing about egg yolk is that we're often not clued into the specific pathology. We might know the consequence, but there's a bunch of pathologies that will lead to Um, these faults with the reproductive tract in birds and egg yolk coelomitis is the end point. But um, I get frustrated, Brendan, very frustrated that I often don't know the precise uh, initiating problem. So that's one of my, you know, top nine troublesome, nasty conditions that I, I don't enjoy seeing.
0: Yes. Do, how many do, would you take to surgery? Would the clients be willing to spend the money and the effort um, despite the guarded prognosis um, with them or, or do, do you find the vast majority just want to go with um, medical treatment and cross your fingers?
1: Look, I think um, uh, this is one of those ones where I think I have to be very careful because I think I can influence people's decision-making process um, and I try and, and uh, give them the, you know, raw data um, and let them make the decision that's going to work best for them. But I think we end up um, probably taking, I don't know, maybe maybe as many as 5 or 10% of them to surgery. Um, but it would be the... the um, and surprisingly enough, I'm always pleased when we do um, because generally speaking... Um, we get an answer and and more often than not, we get an answer that, um, you know, we can do something about uh, at the time of surgery. Surgery is going to be a much more profound final solution um, than working medically with them. But I would say probably 90% of them were, um, 90% of the ones we treat, we're treating medically um, with uh, um, the gonadotrophin uh, agonists and um, try to get them under control that way.
0: Yes, that answers the question exactly. I'm um, just try. I may be putting my microphone on mute shortly, Mark. I have a really annoying mosquito flying around here and all I can think of is mosquito-borne viruses <laughs> <laughs> because we we're talking off air a bit about um, my upcoming trip to the Indian subcontinent and um, preventative mes- measures for malaria and other other um, organisms. So, yes, so you may hear a, 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 a sudden noise shortly, Mark, and, you and just, listeners. You should
1: just leave the microphone on and we'll deal with the slap when it comes.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. So number four, Mark, is one that, we, well, we briefly spoke off air about this particular one and it is one that I see. I wouldn't say regularly, but uh, not rarely. And that is cavian leukemia or guinea pig leukemia. Um, it also has a couple of other names, lymphocytic leukemia. Sometimes I think it's called lymphoma as well, but it is a retrovirus. And um, yeah, I've seen two in the last month, Mark. And the reason why I have this one on the nasty nine is that the prognosis is is hopeless for these. Um, I, it's another one where I, once I've diagnosed it, the animal's dead within a few days, if not a few weeks. I don't think I've had one that's lasted longer than longer than three weeks. I think. Um, and the classic signs for this one, Mark, and I think you said you rarely, if ever, have seen this, is um, lymphadenopathy, so enlarged lymph nodes um, generalized enlargement of those peripheral lymph nodes is what you can usually obviously see on a on a clinical examination that that the, the classic sort of presentation is my guinea pig is flat um, it's lethargic it may have a little bit of gut stasis equivalent not quite right not eating well not very active and uh, as soon as I begin my clinical examination I feel one enlarged lymph node and then I feel several enlarged lymph nodes and then I start worrying because um yeah it's such a nasty disease. The diagnosis um for it is either doing a needle aspirate and and picking up those tumor cells or a biopsy or, or 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 also doing um bloods mark and you get a massive white blood cell count in, in 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 tens of thousands, up to hundreds of thousands sometimes mark, um with them. So it's it's usually very obvious the diagnosis for it. Um I don't think there are any there are any protocols for um, potential treatment for it that I know of. Um, My usual recommendations to the client are um, start saying goodbye to your little piggy and um, we pop it on some palliative care, which equals um, analgesia. Usually sometimes we consider non-steroidals or potentially it might be one of the conditions where we may consider um, a glucocorticoid um, with it, um, a corticosteroid. Um, but yeah, they they're usually gone or, or euthanized within several days, if not a couple of weeks. So, so have you seen any of these? Books? Well,
1: as we were talking about before, Brennan, when we were doing our extensive prep for our um our podcast, I I asked you um to tell me about it because I honestly can't say um that I have a recollection of diagnosing um uh, lymphocytic leukemia in um. In guinea pigs, and I wondered whether there was some um, geographic problem with Newcastle that maybe we haven't got the um, the the retrovirus in sufficient numbers locally, or maybe more likely, um, there's a uh, um, you know an absence of understanding in the veterinary staff who uh, who have seen it but haven't recognised it. I don't know, Brendan. One of these things could be true.
0: Well, now you're on the lookout for it, Mark. I'm looking forward to your well, not for the piggy, but I'm looking forward to your first diagnosis of this um, condition with them. Yeah, because we, I must admit, we do see, as I mentioned previously off air, we see, probably, or I see probably anything from three or four to a dozen a year. So, um, yeah, it's a, not nice, and and a couple within the last few weeks. Um, so, yeah, I'd certainly um, regard it as a nasty. One of the nasty nine, Mark, because it's such a horrible thing to to see in these animals, and it's again, it's another one where we end up with a dead, dead patient and a grieving owner. Mark, what's number five for our nasty nine? Mark? Number five
1: is one also that we've. Uh, it's a bit of a recap of, of um, you know playing the old favourites. Um, uh, respiratory disease in uh, rodents, Brendan. One of our recent episodes. Um, th- this. It has the same sort of characteristics, a, a chronic troublesome disease that's often presented by really desperately good clients who are trying to do the right thing by their animals. And um, and often uh, the awful thing about um, that I've had recently with respiratory disease in rodents is that not only is it, um, I've got some clients now who almost, what's the right way to put this without, they they love their rats so much and they love observing their social life and and they manage their husbandry in excellent fashion, but they keep getting the occasional new rat and then the process of managing those rats ends up including... um, uh, trying to deal with their respiratory disease. Um, and I do have quites now who have four and five rats each at various stages of um, of uh, um, suffering from respiratory disease. And and it's inexorably going to get worse over a period of time. And despite the things that, you know, we're, we're developing an increasing array of supportive care um, uh Techniques to give the rats um, some relief, particularly in those episodes, the periods of time when they're most stressed and um, and uh, things seem to be um, progressing more quickly, or having one of those spikes that these uh, rodents have. Um, but yeah, it just is is um, it's, it's a disease that um, I wish we had a cure for, Brendan. It's it's nasty because I cannot offer people a resolution to their problem, um, and um, they just. These people care so much that it's one of those situations. I wish I did have a cure.
0: Yes, and I think it's nasty because exactly that, that it may not be life-threatening initially, but it's so frustrating, the fact that we can't um, cure the condition, that we're really just controlling it with them um, as we detailed in episode 42 wasn't it um heavy breathing was the name we had for that episode um with respiratory disease in running so yeah it's a it's a frustrating one i mean it's certainly challenging and 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 it's also very, i find it fascinating with these sorts of chronic conditions where they're multi looking at the the response or the different responses we have with clients with it mark um for instance the client you just mentioned that would go all out with um spending time and effort um, with all their various little ratties um, and you have another client that um, is very pragmatic about things and and, and and or may not be able to spend much time or effort or money um, on looking after their, their rodent. So it, you see the whole spectrum with these ones, don't you? So I think that's part of the frustration with some of these conditions where we know we can potentially... Help things for the patient, but we may be a bit hamstrung with being able to do that because of the client um, client circumstances with it. So, yeah, respiratory disease in rodents, yes, a nasty nine mark. Um, number six is is one you should take on too, Mark, because it's something to do with those our little feathered friends, or, or maybe not feathered friends, Mark, and that is feather picking in our avian patient.
1: It is. It's one of my. Um, it's it. it it is one of the ones where I have both a, um, you know, I have mixed emotions because I really love the opportunity to try and make um, things better for these birds. Um, and on the other hand, I know that many of them are going to be difficult, difficult cases to to work up. And I, I get frustrated with these cases, Brendan, because um, I'll, I'll – uh, do my research, I'll um, look over the, the various expert, um, you know, the, the uh, avian veterinarians who I look up to around the world and um, and they, you know, often present uh, the resolution to feather destructive behaviour in birds. In I don't know, I read their cases and they look like they're just, you know, absolutely logical and simple and if I just did these four or five things, everything would be good. But in the way of um, complicated disease, complicated multifactorial disease that often has species-specific characteristics, when I apply those simple basic principles to, um, to my cases, it doesn't seem that the first few steps yield many results. It's often having to work through you know, many steps before you get an improvement at all. And the worst cases are easily the leader in this department for me are the eclectus parrots, the complex psychological issues, the emotional birds that they are, um, the complicated, um, um, you know, reproductive life they have in the wild that we can only um, present them with a very pale and inferior imitation of in-captivity. It's no wonder they end up with psychological complex complications and emotional issues and uh, and end up um, damaging their plumage, Brendan. And when I see it, I think it's one of the nine nasty things that I get to see.
0: Yes, I'm lucky in that when we have a feather-picking bird, Client phoning up the clinic. Um, it is usually pushed on to one of the other vets who um, much prefer to see our little avian patients than me. Um, otherwise, I'd be stuck with a little feather picking friend that I'd, I'd certainly need that coffee machine working, Mark. Otherwise, um, I, I know they can be quite. Time-consuming, can't they? Um, these these cases—it's a bit like doing the complex dealing with the complex skin disease case in a dog or a cat. That um, there's no real shortcuts with it. You have to work th- work through the process of um, nutting out what's wrong with it, and and they're frustrating. Um, and and um, yeah, I'm glad that I don't have to deal personally with too many of them, Mark. So yeah, feather picking in birds. Um, nasty nine number six. Number seven's one that we will do a separate podcast on, Mark. So I think we'll just rip through this one pretty quickly, but it's a frustrating one for everybody involved. Um, and that is the emerging viral diseases that we see in reptiles, especially snakes. So here in Australia we're talking about um the sunshine virus um we we're talking about the um Bornavirus. We're talking about the variations on all these viruses. That um, Tim Hindwood, our Hindman, uh, hein- our um, virologist, veterinary friend over in Perth, Murdoch, who discovered the Sunshine virus, um, and hence named the Sunshine virus after the after the place where it was first isolated, the Sunshine Coast of Queensland. Um, yeah, dealing with these um, and. I the reason why I find it nasty is there's just so little still known about everything about these viruses um pathogenesis of them how long they they take to show up um the incubation period of them the transmission of them um preventative aspects of it um um what do we do if we have an outbreak of these viral conditions in our reptile patients in a collection, what do we do? Do we destock the whole collection and kill all the animals? Um, do we isolate the animals? How long do we isolate them for? How many times do we test them um to to give us a, ourselves reasonable confidence that maybe we don't have the the disease in in individuals there it, it's it, it rapidly i in 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 my mind anyway market gets very complex very quickly and then trying to convey all those points to the client um with, with potentially devastating news to the client that their animal or animals are positive to these these viruses that we don't want in collections and that potentially they have to um, cull all their animals, Mark. Um, so that's why I classify the viral diseases in reptiles as, as certainly, you know, high up in the nasty nine, Mark, um, and, and a real challenge. And and i know you and i both look forward to tim speaking at our annual conference where he does an update on all these viruses and um everybody the whole room goes silent doesn't it when tim's talking about the update of of um what we do and don't know about these viruses
1: i think it's um the other thing i struggle with is um that there definitely is in the um the community of people who keep these reptiles, there are there's a lot of stigma associated with it. And so it adds that level of difficulty communicating because um, clients will often like literally throw their hands up in the air and give up and just want the whole collection gone. Um, it's not a question of, um, you know, uh, I'm culling them because, you know, these animals are likely... Um, exposed and that's the best medical course of action, it, it's sometimes an emotional response um, and they're sometimes really, really frustrating. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I agree with you, Brendan. Um, the, those, uh, particularly the viral diseases in snakes, they're, they're um, always a, a loaded, um, emotionally challenging um, cases to deal with, with people who've invested a significant amount of their... Um, emotional effort into caring for these animals and they're heartbroken when they have to think about um, culling them, as you said. So what about um, number eight, Brendan? Number eight is a little bit of a, um, it's probably less a disease process and and, um, uh, more of a rip, Recur- recurrent circumstance. When I first graduated and was looking at this particular problem, it was it was like regularly the case. Um, the practice I worked at would see lots of um, ferrets who were um, not pets, who were uh, kept for rabbiting purposes, and so I would regularly be bitten by ferrets. And then um, those the people that kept those sorts of ferrets have I don't know died out or disappeared and. And, and I went for a long time where I would never um, be nipped by a, a little furry, sneaky creature. And, um, and just recently, probably over the last couple of years, there seems to be a little bit of a resurgence in the, um, the number of ferrets that are happy to have a bite at me, Brendan. My next nasty thing in the nine nastiest is being bitten by a ferret. Does it ever happen to you?
0: Yes, it does, but I can't remember the last time because well, I'm just very wary of a ferret where I have an owner that comes in who seems like they don't know how to handle their ferret. And it's it's one of my little tips to students when they come in and that I say, "Look, one of one of the one of the little tips you can do with with doing a clinical examination of any unusual pet is ask the client to take the animal out of the enclosure um that they brought the animal in and if that client looks really wary about removing that ferret or they put on the garden gloves um or they say no he bites well you've you've got one of two three things happening i think Mark. one it is a bitey ferret and, and to me, it's just a really poorly trained ferret. And I don't think there's really an excuse to have a bitey ferret. It's a bit that I, my analogies I use is, is the same as a bitey dog or a cat. Yes, you will get a, an occasional crazy dog or cat that, that is, is poorly poorly, um, that, that just is a crazy dog or a cat, but most of the time it's poor husbandry, it's poor training, it, it's poor um, training for that animal on behalf. Um, for, so it's a human's fault um, rather than the animal's fault. Um, or that We learn that that particular client just does not handle their patient at all, their their, their little animal at all, whether it's a rabbit or a guinea pig or or snake or whatever, um, because um, they they just seem like they just have no confidence in grabbing that animal out of the box. So it tells you a lot about the client and a lot about the pet as well, Mark. So so yeah, nasty, nasty biting ferrets. Yes, I see them occasionally, but thank goodness I, I haven't been bitten by a ferret for a, a fairly long time. And I'm a little bit the same with you in that we don't see as many. We do see some um, working ferrets that are used for, for rabbiting um, um, and, and they're just kept in little tiny um, boxes and then they're Taken out just to work and 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 flush out um, rabbits from rabbit warrens, um, and those ones aren't handled as pets. And yes, I think I think they are more likely to bite. But we do see occasional. Um, um, uh, numbers of those. But I must admit that the ones we do tend to see that we have on the books, a client is pretty good and we know that they are uh, not very well handled. So we take those precautions um, first up. But yes, having a bitey ferret, I find very frustrating and it gets me a bit angry, Mark. It certainly does um, when I have a client that has a ferret that um, potentially bites and then um, it's a bit like dogs. I remember a very long time ago, I had a had a German shepherd um, that was brought in to me in my very first practice that I worked at, Park. Um, you so it was it's brought a in by, day, and it's a very, very long time ago. And um, it was a strap a big German Shepherd that probably weighed 40, 45 kilograms. Um, and I think it was a very young dog, so it was probably only two two or three years of age, and he had it on... A, I should have known when he walked in the client, but I was a new graduate when he walked into the waiting room. Um, he had it on a very long chain mark. Um, it was a very thick chain, um, and the collar around its neck consisted of a chain as well. Um, and if I recall correctly, he was bringing this shepherd into the clinic because it was itching, and I think it had fleas. Um But he brought it into the consult room. We had a very small consult room, and he was stood at one side of the consult room, and I was stood in the other back corner of the consult room because I'd turned around to grab my stethoscope, I think, or perhaps a thermometer, which is a bit bold of me, um, considering what happened next. And this German shepherd literally ran at me from the other side of the room and leapt at me. It looked like it was trying to rip my throat out baying at me barking at me and luckily enough um, the chain lead was just short enough where the dog snapped to um, at the end of the lead and it was about three inches in front of my face mark when it finally hit the end of the chain and then fell to the ground and was still trying to lunge at me with this big burly man trying to desperately pull the German shepherd away from me. And um, his next comment was, oh, he does okay. that. Um, <laughs> and that's where I got angry, Mark, and I think that's where it started um, this whole <laughs> process of me becoming angry with clients and, and their patients. I, I just wish he had told me very early on. Um, you know, it's the old, um, oh, he he does bite. Um, I wish you had told me that at the start of the cons- consultation. And not at the end, Mark. So, yes, bite in ferrets I do not enjoy. And and that, well, that that's introduced the, the last of the nasty nine, Mark, isn't it? And that is whinging clients. Um, maybe I should have put down whinging veterinarians, Mark, um, because it, it's it's something I don't enjoy. And luckily enough, thank goodness, we, we encourage good clients um, and As far as I know, virtually all the clients on our books these days are good clients, so hello to any of the clients that are listening, not that you should be listening because this is a veterinary podcast and not for clients, so please unsubscribe (laughs) now if you're a client listening to this. You shouldn't be listening Um, because I just, yeah, I I, I think I finally realised about 10 years ago, Mark, um, I'm a slow learner that, If Mr. Smith comes in every week with his little cat or his dog or his guinea pig or his rabbit or his bird or his snake... And from the minute he walks into the con, into the waiting room, in fact, he complains to the, to the waiting staff there, to the, to the veterinary nurse on reception. He complains about how the clinic, we're always slow and we make him wait and that we cost too much. We, our fees are way too much and we charge too much and we never solve the problem for his dog, cat snake bird whatever guinea pig Um, and he does the same when he comes into the clinic um, into the consultation room with me and then he does the same again when he gets out and I'm sure he does the same again when he goes home and he talks to his family and when he goes down to the pub or down to the bingo um, or down to the pokey machines and talks to everybody there and complains about Brendan the vet I finally treat twigged about 10 years ago, Mark, um, that it's just not worth it and they're the clients you should sack. So that's what we do um, if we have somebody who keeps complaining all the time. And we gently say to Mr. Smith, perhaps we're not serving you very very well and and that maybe you should look elsewhere for a veterinarian. Um, and and, and the, the interesting thing, Mark, I don't know whether you've done the same thing, you, you tend to get two responses. One, they go away, fantastic, because then you don't look on Monday morning and see that Mr. Smith is coming in on Friday and it ruins your whole week because you're worrying about Mr. Smith and you, you're not sleeping at night because he's coming in on Friday or they end up becoming your That's best so client funny. because they apologise yes, to you.
1: I agree entirely, Brendan. Some of our um, uh, best clients, we've had a little word to them about, um, I often use, you, you often, have I've used my Italian leather shoe story with you before, haven't I, that um, I tell them that uh, they can be great clients and we can be a great practice, but if the fit is not right, like um, a great Italian leather shoe um, then it's still going to give you blisters. And if we're giving you blisters, then, you know, maybe it's time to move on and find a practice that suits your needs better. We're not making judgments about you and that way they're not making judgments about us. But oftentimes those people will, you know, be confronted by the suggestion that um, that uh, we don't seem to be satisfying their needs judging by their, all, their, all their complaints. And, um, and they'll, they'll take a year or two off and, and we won't see them and, and that's probably, as you said, Brendan, good because we don't have to worry about their complaints. But then they'll often come back and with a new perspective, they've been somewhere else and they may see that um, they don't get waited on as well as the the uh, support staff look after them at um, at our hospitals and, and, and they have a new attitude and they often do end up being um, amongst your you know, you switch them from what the, the practice management gurus call D or E clients into B or A clients. Um, I agree.
0: happens often. Yes, and... and- We're all different, and I think, like, with with any professional organisation or with any place, even if you're going down to the local coffee shop, um, we all have different expectations, and and you may like the look of the coffee shop I take you to, but um, um, I may hate it, Um, but I don't know why I go there if I take you to that coffee shop, Mark. So we're all different, and and it's not it's it's not wrong if if a client decides to go somewhere else if we decide that we don't like a particular coffee shop we don't provide puppy classes for instance in my clinic mainly because we don't see a heap of heap of dogs and cats and it's a small clinic mark and i think you do provide puppy classes and we often get asked by clients which puppy classes do you recommend locally? And we have a list of them. And I literally say to the client, look, I don't recommend any one particular puppy trainer because you um, attend, go to a few of them without your puppy, look at them. If you like the feel of it, then go there. If you don't like the feel of it, don't stay there because everybody's different with it. And I think it's the same with doctors, with veterinarians, with dentists, with everybody. And it's not... It's not that your particular skills in that, in that, in that profession are good or bad. It's that you tend to attract people that, that maybe have a similar or a complementary personality, I suppose, um, or the way that you approach cases. And, and yeah, if, if Mr. Smith is getting on my nerves, chances are I get on Mr. Smith's nerves as well. So perhaps it's time that we parted. So yeah, that's my them's my thoughts, Mark's on on annoying clients or annoying vets, and um, perhaps that's our last of our nasty nine. And I think we should do another nasty, a nasty. It's been very <laughs> cathartic, as you mentioned, Mark. I've I've quite enjoyed it. I'm feeling quite calm now, although this this mosquitoes given me the Schiesenhousens, and, and I'm I'm still trying to find it, Mark. Um, I'm, and I am not. I'm desperately trying not to swear because we have listed our podcast as, as G-rated, so I'm not going to um, run off a you at split mark. It's got very close to being smacked, um, but I still haven't found it, and I think it's bitten me two or three times, Mark, so I may end up in hospital fairly soon. So I think it's time to go, and we will see you all next week, and thank you for listening.